I read a list recently ranking the best authors of all time. Of course, that's a very subjective list. I mean, how do you really compare one author against another author across genres, across centuries, even across millennia? But people try to do so, and I suppose for discussion purposes, it's an interesting thing to toss backwards and forwards. Now, the list on Ranker.com rated as the best writer of all time. Drum roll, please. Who do you think? The number one ranked writer, rated author, at least on this listing. Who would it be? Well, if you said William Shakespeare, you'd be absolutely right. The Bard, William Shakespeare, rated as the greatest writer of all time, the best writer. Number two, now you've got to be a wordy of some kind to, 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 to think about this name. This one might not, if you, if you know books, you might say Fyodor Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist, came in number two. If you say, who? I fully understand. Then, another Russian. So if Dostoevsky was second and yet another Russian was third, who would that Russian be? It could only be Leo Tolstoy who wrote War and Peace and Anna Karenina. Tolstoy, incidentally, was a Christian. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature five years in a row. That's at least from 1902 to 1906. And he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize three times. Never, ever won the prestigious prize even once. Some controversy about that. But back to the list. Number four, Homer, the ancient Greek who's thought to thought to have written, thought to have written the Iliad and the Odyssey. Then who came in at fifth? A little more modern. Charles Dickens. George Orwell, 1984, eighth. Americans finally show up on the list at ninth and tenth. Edgar Allan Poe and then Ernest Hemingway. Number 12, Samuel Langhorne Clements. Who is that? Of course, Mark Twain. John Steinbeck, 16. Geoffrey Chaucer, who wrote the Canterbury Tales, 35th, behind Ray Bradbury. Some might argue that. Some might argue that vociferously. Even though Paradise Lost is considered to be one of the greatest works in the English language, John Milton was only ranked number 41, behind Ray Bradbury. Dr. Seuss, number 62, one spot ahead of Harper Lee. Evidently, the cat in the hat is more consequential than to kill a mockingbird. So, I don't know. Now, when you talk about the number of books written, who's the greatest writer by number, by volume, or even just who wrote the most? It all gets a little bit murky. It's said that the science and science fiction writer Isaac Asimov wrote more than 400 books. Man, have you ever written a book? It's hard to imagine how anybody could write 400, and Asimov was dealing with heavy stuff or technical stuff. Okay, creative, imaginative, weird stuff often. I just finished a book. Well, a devotional book. So it's a book, but it's, it's not a book book. I mean, lots and lots of words, but you wouldn't call it quite the same work as War and Peace or Moby Dick. Impossible to imagine a person could write 400 books of substance, but who knows? Agatha Christie wrote almost 70 novels and 19 plays. She sold two 
billion books. In fact, she sold two million books in the English language alone in 2020, despite having been dead for 45 years. There are some authors who are said to have written hundreds and hundreds of books, but it's pretty clear they had writers write for them and they merely attached their name to the book, so that doesn't qualify. The word author means a person who invents or causes something. It's related to the word authentic, meaning genuine or maybe original. An author produces something authentic, produces something authentic, something genuine, something original. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is described as an author. Not that Jesus wrote the Bible. He did not. Now, you could say that he inspired the Bible as he is a part of the Godhead, but Jesus certainly did not write the Bible. Author. The Greek word is archegos, which means something like one who leads the way. It means a leader, originator, founder, pioneer. The word archegos is used four times in the New Testament. In Acts 3.15, Jesus is the the prince of life, the archegos of life. Acts 5.31, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince, archegos, and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 2 verse 10, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain, the archegos of their salvation, perfect through sufferings. And then Hebrews 12 and verse 2, where Jesus is the author of our faith. Let's pause and take a moment to look at that. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Here's what the Bible says. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares or besets us, and let us run with patience or with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. One scholar uses the illustration of a ship foundering on a rock. Someone jumps overboard with a rope, he says, and swims ashore, securing the line somewhere on the shore so that the others are able to grab onto the rope and come to safety. The one who did it originally, an archegos. He fulfilled the role of an archegos. It is said that in secular Greek, in the pantheon of the gods, Zeus was called the archegos of the gods, meaning he was the head or the chief of all the gods. Incidentally, head or chief is Archegos' simplest literal meaning. Jesus, the archegos and the finisher of our faith. So what does this suggest about Jesus and salvation? Well, it suggests something that we really need to know. Here's what I'm coming to believe more and more. The questions of greatest importance to God's people today have less to do with the chiastic structure of the book of Revelation 
less to do with the daily in Daniel 8, less to do with the identity of the seven kings or the eight kings in Revelation chapter 17, and more to do with a person's relationship with Jesus. Now, you didn't hear me say that those other things are not important. It's all important if it's in the Bible. But what's most important is how we navigate our relationship with Jesus, how we interpret our relationship with Jesus, how we perceive our relationship with Jesus, how we understand our relationship with Jesus. Every so often, somebody will come to me and say, Pastor, I have a question for you. Sure, what's the question? Once in a great while, it's something easy, something light, something easy. But more often than not, the people who approach me at conventions and gatherings and meetings and pull me to one side and say, I've got a, I've got a question for you. They're asking me meaningful questions, deep questions. But again, not about the daily, not about Daniel 7, not about Revelation 17. They're asking me about their standing with Jesus. They're asking me how they can live based on what they've done in the past and the guilt that they carry with them today. They're asking me how they can measure up when in the Bible God clearly makes some big claims on our lives. They're asking me how they can live before God with a clear conscience because of some of those things that have happened in the past. People who drift away from church don't usually do so because they saw some deep theological point differently than a certain seminary professor might have. No, what's troubling people today is their relationship with Jesus. Again, I'm not saying the other things aren't important. They're all important. But I'm talking about what's most important. In earth's last days, when God's people are wrestling with sin and salvation, what will come over them, I have read, is a deep sense of their sin and sinfulness. And they're going to want to know that they're forgiven. I read this in a book called The Great Controversy. Great book. Listen, as they review the past, their hopes sink. For in their whole lives, they can see little good. They are fully conscious of their weakness and unworthiness. Satan endeavors to terrify them with the thought that their cases are hopeless, that the stain of their defilement will never be washed away. He hopes so to destroy their faith that they will yield to his temptations and turn from their allegiance to God. They fear that every sin has not been repented of, and that through some fault in themselves, they will fail to realize the fulfillment of the Savior's promise. Now, the author encourages us by saying, but while they have a deep sense of their unworthiness, they have no concealed wrongs to reveal. Their sins have gone beforehand to judgment, have been blotted out, and they cannot bring them to remembrance. But you'll notice what God's people wrestle with at last. Weakness, unworthiness, forgiveness of sin. No one in the time of trouble is going to find themselves deeply anguished over whether or not this nation or that nation is represented by one of the horns in Daniel 7. No one during the time of trouble is going to be in soul anguish over the precise meaning of the many details in Daniel chapter 11. The big question for us is, who is Jesus to you? And what is your standing with him? 
How do you experience salvation? And how is that being worked out in your life? What do you do with sin? How do you see yourself before God when you fall again? Pause with me just a minute and let me say this. If you are one of the kind souls who say, well, wait a minute, get meeting time. What's this brother doing talking about Jesus? Come on, man. Jesus is the center of it all. Our message for the world is the everlasting gospel. The everlasting gospel, which is the gospel of Jesus, you see. And if you look around the church, no one in their right mind is going to state, oh, everything's fine here in Zion. No one's going to say everything is just like it ought to be. We're all going to say, oh, no, no, there could be some changes made. We could, we could rise a little bit. We could, uh, we could grow some. Things could be a little smoother. Things could be a little plainer. Things could be a little better. We could be a little more evangelistic. We could be a little more powerful in our preaching and our presenting and our proselytizing and our witnessing. Everybody could say that. So if that's the case, what's missing? What's missing is Jesus. Not that he's entirely absent. But that we're not letting him in. We're not understanding him, appreciating him, experiencing him as we should be. Jesus is the center of the plan of salvation. Grace is found in him. Forgiveness is found in him. Jesus calls us out of the darkness of sin and into his marvelous light. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. From all unrighteousness, Jesus welcomes sinners. He that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out, Jesus said. There is no hope outside Christ, no salvation outside Jesus. And yet, he doesn't make it hard. He doesn't make salvation onerous. He doesn't make it difficult. He simply says, come to me and I will give you rest. He is the author of your salvation. We have nothing outside Jesus. But long ago, the plan of salvation was devised. And in the Council of Peace, it was determined that should humanity fall into sin, Jesus would come to this world and lift us up, save us, rescue us. It wasn't our idea. It was God's. We didn't initiate it. God did. We didn't originate it. He did. We are not the authors of our salvation. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It is Jesus Who begins the work in you? Now think of the prodigal son in a far country, sitting in a stinking pig pen. And and by the way, pig lovers, and I know they're everywhere, pig lovers are going to tell you, oh, pigs are clean. What, What pigs are clean? What, what pigs have you been hanging around that are clean? Oh, well, my daughter, she has a pet pig. Well, that's different, isn't it? That's a pet pig. Pet tarantulas and pet turtles and pet iguanas are clean as well. They're all clean when they're pets. The pigs in that pigsty in the prodigal son story were anything but clean. In my hometown, in fact, a couple of miles outside of town, mercifully, there was a piggery. And if you drove from my hometown to the smaller town of Topiti up the road or Huntley a little further up the road, and I blindfolded you and said to you, tell me when we pass the pig farm. Oh, you could do it. 
No sweat. Even though it was set back from the road, every time you drove past it, you could smell it. You know what? I can still smell it. It's a smell I will never forget. Ooh, not good. The prodigal son was in a malodorous pigsty, and the Spirit of God came to him and brought conviction to his heart and the comforting thought that he would be accepted by his father. It was Jesus who was the author of this young man's faith. Through the Holy Spirit, he spoke into that young man's heart. Jesus was the author of the prodigal son's salvation. You know, when I was experiencing success in my secular professional career years ago, it was Jesus who came to me and would speak to me of the emptiness of that life. Jesus would say to me, is this really what you want? You really want to live like that? Is that how you want your life to be? Is this how you want to be perceived? Is this, are you proud of making this of yourself? I wasn't asking myself those questions. I was having a good time. But it was Jesus who was saying to me, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? It was Jesus who came to you once or twice or many times. It was Jesus who said, there's a better way for you. It's Jesus who speaks to you now and who says, why are you kicking against the pricks? Are you doing that? That's Jesus asking you, why are you resisting? It's Jesus who says, you can forget all about that. Come to me and I will give you rest. When you're sharing your faith, you're simply working alongside Jesus. You don't bring conviction. You don't convince anyone about the rights and the wrongs of the teachings of the Bible. It's Christ who does that work. You don't teach anyone that God really made the world and that Jesus is really the Savior and that there's really a heaven and that there's... You can't convince anybody that. You can share that information, but it is Christ Jesus who brings that home to the heart. Jesus is the author of our faith. Read in the Bible. The Bible says that Jesus came to this world to seek and save that which was lost. He brings the gift of salvation. Jesus wandered through the countryside looking for people to reach and to save. This was Jesus, the author. He came with the gift, and it was God who placed eternity into the hearts of men and women and children everywhere. This is God's doing. He initiates the entire thing. He is the leader. He is the head. He is the chief. He is the archagos, the author of your salvation. Thank God he's also the finisher. Too many people have this idea that justification is by faith, while sanctification is by faith and works. By the way, too many people have the idea that sanctification isn't even a thing. That is deadly. Of course it is. Of course it's important. But where does sanctification originate? Jesus is the author and the finisher. In the same book, Hebrews chapter 6, it says, Therefore, Leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Basically, the same word is used as in Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Jesus is the perfecter, the completer, the maturer of our faith. Second Peter 3.18, 
but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here in Hebrews 12, let us lay aside the weight and the sin which so easily besets us. Paul wrote that we are to grow up in him in Christ in all things, Ephesians 4:15. That we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12 and verse 2. And so here's the question. Jesus is the author. Jesus is the finisher. Does that mean I just sit by in my armchair like a bump on a log, waiting for God to do everything? I just step onto an elevator and, hello, Jesus is going to take me all the way to heaven. I mean, you can make that sound true, but that's not true. I remember being in a place once and there were some meetings on and folks were starting to ask the, 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 the speaker questions. And someone asked the, the speaker this question. Do human beings, do people, do sinners have any work to do in their own salvation? Well, that put the speaker on the spot. And, and, and you could just see him t- t- turning inside out and going this way and going that way. And, and ultimately he said, no, we have nothing, nothing to do at all in our salvation, which of course is ludicrous. You have plenty to do. Oh, not to receive, not to earn, not to get but to cooperate. I remember reading some author, oh my, I wonder who that could have been, who said you will often have to wage stern, hard battles with self. Same author wrote that the hardest battle we ever have to fight is the battle against self. There's a battle, man. We wrestle, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness and high places. Put on the whole armor of God. If you're wearing the armor, what are you wearing the armor for? You know what I never saw? I never saw anybody wear armor to a picnic. I never saw it. I never saw somebody go and watch their kids' little league game wearing armor. What is armor for? It's for a war. It's for defense because you know the enemy is after you. But those cats who wear that armor around there would have a shield here and a sword here and maybe a big old lion say ride along on a horse trying to bop the other guy off the horse. You've seen that stuff. What do you think armor is for? Nothing to do. Are you out of your mind? If you have nothing to do, you're looking for a very short eternity, let me tell you. Again, we don't work our way to heaven. We accept the gift of salvation. We surrender to Jesus. We allow him to do his will. And then we choose Christ. We choose Christ. You can split hairs all day long with me, and I would be bothered, frankly, if you did, but I can't do anything about it. Sanctification is, somebody said, the work of a lifetime, which means it's a work. It's not works. You see, the question is, how is it to be accomplished? If you are working away at this in your own strength, you're setting yourself up for a lifetime of frustration and disappointment. But if you understand how this plays out in your life, what I'm about to tell you might change your entire Christian experience. Read the Bible with me. Philippians 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Next chapter of the same book, chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Next chapter of the same book, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. That's chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. The next chapter, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Are we seeing this? It's important that we do. Jesus comes into your life and you accept him and he forgives you. And that is justification. He is the author of your faith. But he doesn't say, good luck. Try real hard. Remember to pray and read your Bible. I'll check back with you later. That's not how that works. Jesus, when he brings salvation, that gift of salvation isn't to be separated from Jesus himself. Christ enters your life. And he brings with him the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness. He brings into your life repentance. He brings into your life his obedience, his power. And now he starts to live his life in you, you see. And you're going to be walking past a bar one day, and oh man, the bar is calling your voice, calling your name. The bar has a voice. It's calling your name with its voice. And you've walked into that bar a hundred times, a thousand times. And don't think I'm exaggerating. I went back to the city where I was converted, where I gave my heart to Jesus. Oh, that's, it's accurate to say that. And I visited uh, a certain establishment where there were a few people and a lot of beer, a pub. I just went in there to look around. I took my wife to the pub. I said, oh, I want you to come in here and see this place. This is, a, this is a historical place for me. I met a man at the bar who told me that this is so interesting. When I, this was in Limerick, Ireland, and while I was in this bar, I forget what year I could think about it in a moment. I was back there, woo, how many years later? 27 years later, something like that. I got talking to a fellow in there. We just stopped in there for two or three minutes. Just to remember the old place. I met a guy sitting at the bar who told me he's been coming to that same bar, sitting in that same chair for 30 years. I said, is that an exaggeration? Nope, literally 30 years. I told him, well, I was here in such and such a year in January. I would have been standing about right where I'm standing now. He said, I would have been sitting right here. Do the math. He's been in that bar an awful lot. If he walks down that street, he's hearing the bar call his name. That's when you say to the Lord, Lord, help me. Let your will be done. I surrender to your will. My decision is to walk on by. I need you to carry that out of my life. And that's what happens. Don't be confused that sanctification is just sitting back in an armchair, no care, no responsibility, waiting for Jesus to do his thing. Oh, he wants you in this thing. He wants your heart, your mind. He wants your will. He wants your thoughts. What we do in this is surrender. And we appeal to God to take us and to live his life in us. And he will. Let's think about the experience of certain individuals. Jesus called James and John to follow him. Now, he did not call them the sons of the gentle breeze. They were the sons of thunder. They wanted to burn down a Samaritan village and incinerate everyone who lived there. You would not have wanted James and John on your evangelism committee. They would have suggested that you buy Bibles and tracts and Bible studies and incendiary weapons. But even though he saw their weak spots, Jesus was the author of their faith. 
He drew them. He called them. He saw that they could grow. He saw what they could become as they grew in grace. He saw that the work that would be done in their lives. The Bible says that Jesus called Simon and Andrew. That's Simon, Peter, and Andrew. They were fishermen. Now, rightly or wrongly, fishermen have a bit of a reputation. It's tough work. There's not a whole lot of room for gentility on a fishing boat. Fisher folk are typically a stout sort of a bunch. Do you think that Jesus knew Peter might have had some rough edges? No doubt. But he called him anyway as the archagos of Peter's faith. Notice, Jesus called Peter and Andrew. They did not call him. Surprise of surprises. Peter wilted when the going got tough. Again and again. When the going got really tough, he flamed out spectacularly. I don't even know the man, he said, as his curses and imprecations turned the air blue. What does the Bible say? And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, Luke twenty-two sixty-one. It doesn't say Jesus glared at him or stared at him, but looked upon him. It's the same Greek word used when John the Baptist looked upon Jesus or when Jesus looked upon Peter and Andrew. Jesus just looked upon Peter with a heart full of love. Jesus knew that as the author of Peter's faith, he was also going to have to be the finisher of Peter's faith. After Peter had so spectacularly denied his Lord, the angel at the tomb told the women, but go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goes before you into Galilee. There shall you see him as he said to you. Peter departed and Jesus went right after his heart. Peter denied Jesus. Jesus didn't let him go. Peter went off the rails, and the Spirit of God never let up. When they got together, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus asked Peter three times. And this time, Peter affirmed his love for Jesus three times, rather than denying Jesus three times like he had. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And Peter the denier became Peter the proclaimer. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than we listen to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Ooh, now you can't keep them down because Jesus is at work in Peter's life. Jesus is not only the author, but the finisher of Peter's faith. Someone once wrote, when we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in His will. The mind becomes one with His mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to Him. We live His life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of His righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, He sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but His own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. Where do we get that robe of righteousness from? Christ. So we come to Jesus drawn by him and he gives us what we need to get from here all the way to the promised land. When does that happen? When we submit ourselves to him. Jesus begins the work of salvation in your life and he carries out the work of salvation in your life and he 
ends the work of salvation in your life. He is the author and the finisher. You know, I had a neighbor once. He was a retired painter. And I needed some interior painting done. I was very busy. It needed to be done. I was away from home quite a bit. So I made the mistake of asking Joe to do it. If I could remember his last name, I'd tell you. So never would you make the same mistake I did and agree to have Joe do a job. We agreed on a price and Joe came over and got the work started. I'm guessing he got about halfway through. Maybe it was two thirds of the way through. I asked Joe when he was going to come back and finish. He said, I'll be right there. Well, he wasn't right there. I asked him again. Oh, for sure. Monday. Uh, Not so sure. I asked him again. Next week. Well, the next week it was Thursday. Remarkably, Joe never did come back to finish the job. He lived two houses away. Just wouldn't do it. Unbelievable. He started it but wouldn't finish it. Jesus is not like that. The Bible says, He who has begun a good work in you is faithful to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the Lord will perfect that which concerns you. He is the author and He is the finisher of your faith. My friend, you need Jesus more than you need air. You need Jesus more than you need water. We need Him in our hearts. We need Him in our homes. We need Him in our churches. Let me ask you some basic questions. Are you reading the Bible? The answer is yes. You're going to say yes because there's someone sitting near you and you have to say yes. It's the right thing to say. So I'm going to ask you not to answer out loud. Are you reading your Bible? Okay, I heard some yeses. Now, let me ask you this. How often are you reading the Bible? How much are you reading the Bible? Are you letting the Bible wash through your life? Are you looking for and looking to Jesus as you read the Bible? I don't mean to get on your case, but if God is convicting you right now, then I'd be quite happy about that. You see, we receive Jesus in his word. This is the living word. And the living Christ will, will, will come from the pages of that book and enter our hearts. You know, uh, you are what you eat. Uh, spiritually, that's very, very true. What you eat physically, be- it becomes your blood. It becomes part of what you are. It's why it's important to watch what you put in. You put bad stuff in, it has a bad effect on your body. It's, it's just how it works. And no, you're not the exception to the rule. There's no exception. What you eat spiritually is what you become. Are you feeding on the Word of God? Opening up the Bible. Man, I've got to read this. This is the book of Matthew. This is Mark. This is Luke. This is John. I'm reading Acts, Romans. Let me read Galatians. Let me read Philippians and and read it closely and listen. Oh, but John, I'm not a great Bible student. You don't have to be. I'm not a great reader. You don't have to be. Listen to the Bible if you can't read the Bible. And stop making excuses. Just pick the Bible up and read the thing. Are you taking time to pray? If you're not praying, then you're not looking to Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about the the, the basic building blocks of the plan of salvation and the profound ingredients of the plan of salvation. We come to Jesus and he forgives us and makes us new. He justifies us. 
And then we go on from there in a sanctifying relationship with Jesus. What's going to complete the work in you if you're not taking time to pray? If you're not connecting with God? You connect with God. It's like connecting an appliance with electricity. The electricity runs through there. Come on, stick your fingers in that outlet called prayer and feel the electricity run through your life. The power and the presence of God run through your life. Oh, I'm such a sinner. Right. But if you had your head in the Bible more and less in Facebook, less in YouTube, less in Netflix, you would discover a power present in your life that's not present right now. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. If you are looking unto Netflix, you are looking in the wrong direction. But only watch Netflix a little bit. Then you won't miss it when it's gone. But only watch the documentaries. All right, well, that's on you. Not too many people in church who can say, but I'm only watching the documentaries. More's the pity. Come on, friend. Are you looking to Jesus today? Are you experiencing his power? If you look to Moses, in the presence of God, He came down off the mountainside. They said, cover your face, man. You're too bright. We cannot look at you. I had my eyes dilated recently. And the kind doctor gave me these little temporary sunglasses. He said, you need to wear these outside. I went outside. It was a sunny day. And of course, our smarty pants here decided he would take the little sunglasses off and see what it looked like and see if I could get by with my eyes dilated out in the bright sun. How do you think that worked out? Not great. Bright. I, I, I couldn't. I tried. I couldn't. I had to put those sunglasses back on. Because your pupils get this big, you know, and all that light is coming in. Bright. Moses was bright, so bright they couldn't look upon him anymore. They said, cover up, Moses. It's too bright for us. Moses had been in the presence of God, and it showed. You see, Jesus isn't saying, why don't you give something up? Why don't you start doing something? Why don't, why don't, Jesus is saying, come on, let's spend time together. In fact, I want to read to you closing passage here in Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3, we really see the picture here. This is in the context of, of, of a message God has for the last day church. I want to read it to you in Revelation chapter 3. And we'll start in verse where 14. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. You're not. You're lukewarm. So I'm going to have to spew you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing. And you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich. You know that God wants you to be rich? Yeah, rich. He wants you to have gold. This gold, the gold tried in the fire. Uh, White garments, that's the righteousness of Christ. So the shame of your nakedness doesn't appear. Anoint your eyes with eye salve so that you can see. That's the Holy Spirit changing your spiritual vision so that you can see clearly now. I'll get to verse 20. This is what I wanted to read to you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and does what? If anyone hears my voice and goes on a pilgrimage. No. If anyone hears my voice and gives a, a whole, all their money to the church. Now, no church administrator is going to tell me to discourage you from doing that. But that's not what Jesus says. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. That's the message to his people in earth's last days. Would you let me in? My friend, would you look to Jesus today and let him in? This is simple, so simple. Let him in. You know how you let him in? You say, Lord Jesus, I welcome you into my life. I welcome you to take my heart. This is as profound as anything can possibly be because without this, you can't build a single thing on top of it. Nothing. How about as we pray, we make a decision for Jesus today? You're going to open up your heart to Jesus and you're going to say, Lord Jesus, come in. I want to look to you. Thank you for being the archagos and the finisher of my faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your son Jesus today. Friend, I'm getting to the point. Will you let him in? If you will, just raise your hand. That's your invitation. Come into my heart, Jesus. You could be a sinner or a saint. Well, we're all sinners. Whatever your background, your record, your catalog of sins, can you just pray the prayer? Lord, I want you to come and I'll let you in. You have my permission to come into my life. Father God, if Jesus would come into our lives, it would change everything. Jesus, I'm praying in behalf of each one right now. Would you come into my heart, our hearts, make them your own. Sit down, let us dine together and do the work in our lives, in this life, this man, this woman, right now that needs to be done. We thank you for the one who changes everything. We thank you for Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Give us grace to look to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for taking this time in the Word.